On November 2nd, 2004, the Dutch filmmaker Theo van Gogh was murdered by a Muslim assassin who was critical of van Gogh's film submission. In a note that was stabbed to his body with the knife that had killed him was a death threat against the life of Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ayan Hirsi Ali had become famous for her vocal repudiation of Islam in favor of atheism and for courageously maintaining her stance in spite of constant death threats. But this November, just a few days ago, November 13th, in a now viral article, Ayan Hirsi Ali announced her conversion to Christianity. How should we think about Ali's arguments for why she has converted? What lessons can we draw from this event, especially if we're secularists or atheists who champion the values of the Enlightenment? Well, welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is my colleague, senior fellow, Ankar Gatte. Welcome, Ankar. Hi, Ben. Thanks. So we should start this conversation uh, before, uh, I think, digging into what we think is wrong with her essay, uh, giving Ali due credit for the things that she has accomplished, which I think is important to do because it helps underscore what is so sad and tragic about this latest development. So for those of you who have not been following her career, uh, she, she became famous as a critic of Islam, defender of the rights of women uh, who are oppressed in the Mideast, largely because her, of her own experience having endured that kind of oppression. She grew up in Somalia, under, first of all, under the communist regime of Siad Bare, but in a Muslim family, she was herself subjected to really horrific uh, female circumcision, the story of which is told in her book, Infidel. Uh, she then moved to Saudi Arabia, uh, where she was made to study at a madrasa. She moved eventually to Kenya, where she started to discover Western ideas, Western literature, but her family was abandoned by her father. She's beaten by her mother. Her mother falls in with preachers from the Muslim Brotherhood. She studies Islamic ideas from the Muslim Brotherhood very seriously, but starts to ask critical questions, finds contradictions in Islamic doctrine. Uh, at one point then the family decides to arrange a marriage for her and she, uh, to escape it and the civil war that is then descending on Somalia, she flees, she seeks asylum in the Netherlands. Uh, and after experiencing uh, the news of 9-11, she rejects Islam and becomes an atheist. And at that point, she becomes this vocal critic of Islam and its treatment of women. She's elected to the Dutch parliament. She writes that film that gets Van Gogh killed. Uh, and she's even eventually forced to step down from her position in parliament because of a scandal over her asylum status. She fortunately came to the United States. She's still living in hiding because of constant death threats, including from Al Qaeda. Uh, so I think it goes without saying that there is a great deal to admire in her courage. She's one of the few people uh, who's been willing to speak out against totalitarian Islam, who's been willing to say that Islam, the religion, 
is at the root of the terrorist th threat that the West has faced uh, over the last 20, 30 years. And so we have to give her credit for that. But Ankar, uh, <laughs> when I saw this, this article that she, that she released uh, earlier this week, I, I, the way I described it on, on Twitter was that it was like uh, a bright light in the darkness had suddenly been snuffed out because the, well, let, let me let her speak for herself. I'll, I'll quote a few paragraphs. I think these, these paragraphs yeah. get to the essence of her argument. Oh, did you want to say something first? Yeah, just, just before you do that, I think part of what is admirable about her, and we'll leave aside the article for a moment, is part of what you said and what you were emphasizing is that she was a vocal, outspoken critic of totalitarian Islam in the face of enormous threats, including all kinds of death threats. She's in under constant police protection. But I would put, there's a second element of that, of, and I'm thinking of again of her background of where she came from of, and of what she learned. It's, you can say she became an atheist, but it's more than that in that she championed some of the enlightenment values. So she saw herself on the side of uh, secular science, reason, and freedom, and, and worked to promote that. She went into politics in, in the Netherlands and so on. So it wasn't just like, I've been a victim of a real evil, I'm going to keep denouncing it. She had a conception of there's a better way to live and spoke about that as well. And that's part of what she seems to be either repudiating or at least retreating on. And I think that's part of what makes it sad, tragic, as you put it. Yeah, I agree completely. So why this retreat? Well, if you read the article and it was published in a, a magazine called Unheard, she says the following. She, uh, she speaks, for instance, of what led her to atheism in the first place, reading Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian. Uh, this piece is titled in response, Why I Am Now a Christian. She writes, Russell and other activist atheists believe that with the rejection of God, we would enter an age of reason and intelligent humanism. But the God hole, the void left by the retreat of the church, has merely been filled by a jumble of irrational quasi-religious dogma. In this nihilistic vacuum, the challenge before us becomes civilizational. We can't withstand China, Russia, and Iran, if we can't explain to our population why it matters that we do. We can't fight woke ideology if we can't defend the civilization that is determined, it is determined to destroy. And we can't counter Islamism with purely secular tools. To win the hearts and minds of Muslims here in the West, we have to offer them something more than videos on TikTok. The lesson I learned from my years with the Muslim Brotherhood was the power of a unifying story embedded in the foundational texts of Islam to attract, engage, and mobilize the Muslim masses. Unless we offer something as meaningful, I fear the erosion of our civilization will continue. And fortunately, there is no need to look for some new age concoction of medication and mindfulness. Christianity has it all. Ankar, what was your reaction to this? Uh, well, to the Christianity has it all was, um, it was so lame an explanation of what what supposedly is positive in Christianity. It has it all. Like I don't need to mention anything. There's in the article. There's one mention of something that she thinks is connected 
to I mean, some explanation of why she thinks it's connected to Christianity. But the article basically has nothing about why Christianity is a positive. It's rather it's Christianity is going to help. Supposedly, it's Christianity will help us fight an evil. And I think that what stood out for me for the article is this is an example of the fact that we live in a tribal age. I really do think we live in a tribal age that most people um, have in, uh, in, in politics, in morality, in the so-called cultural wars. When I said they're not cultural wars, they're tribal wars. Um, and that many, many people have succumbed to this. And in, when you live in that kind of age, even the better people start succumbing to it. And I think that I view this as an example of that. And part of that, what it means, I think, that we live in a tribal age is that the salient motivating factor for most people is fear. Fear of an outsider, fear of an enemy, fear of another tribe that you think of, it has to be destroyed at all costs. And part of the all cost means you're willing to do anything, say anything, and in quotes, think anything if you think it will help you destroy your enemy. And I have more sympathy for Ayan Hersiali that fear is a major motivation for her because of well, both her upbringing and her current life that you, I mean, it is not easy to live under police protection all the time. Um, under death threats and being in a culture that often whitewashes those death threats, that they're not really real, that she's exaggerating about the nature of Islam as it exists in so many places in the Middle East today, um, so that, they, that, that, that it's overblown. Yeah, there's a few people who've hijacked the, the religion. That, so there's all kinds of downplaying of the threat she faces. And yet, if you live with that threat all the time, you know it's real. And to see a culture downplaying that or disregarding it in the same way that they disregard it in regard to Salman Rushdie, it's very hard to live like that. And you could understand why fear would be a dominant motivation um, throughout life. And if you read the article, the issue of fear is all over the place. And it's relevant that her her um, embrace of atheism is particularly that she thought it would drive the fear away. And this is, this is a part of how she puts it in the article. When I read Russell's lecture, I found my cognitive dissonance easy. It was a relief to adopt an attitude of skepticism towards religious doctrine, discard my faith in God and declare that no such entity existed. Best of all, I could reject the existence of hell and the danger of everlasting punishment. Russell's assertion that religion is based primarily on fear resonated with me. I had lived for too long in terror of the gruesome punishments that awaited me. And then when she converts or is converted by the Muslim Brotherhood, she notices something about herself that I think is important. She says, the most striking quality of the Muslim Brotherhood was their ability to transform me and my fellow teenagers from passive believers into activists almost overnight. Activists, and, and if 
I mean, she talks about it a bit in the article, but if you know of the content of this kind of doctrine, it's simultaneously fear of stepping aside from some uh, religious taboo, I mean, violating some religious tab taboo. So you're in fear of your religious leaders and they teach you to fear outsiders. Here she said it was particularly the Jews are the enemy who have to be destroyed. A tribe who, if, they, if we let them get out of hand, will end our existence. So we have to end their existence. So it's again, she's immersed in fear. Um, it's inculcated in her and she notices she's susceptible to it. Like part of what surprised her, how easy it was for them to do that. And then, so, and that she thinks of, yeah, like this is part of what religion's doing. This is how she puts it, what she thought atheism would do. As an atheist, I thought I would lose that fear. Again, that's what she says in the article. And then, so, and then it's, so what changed? And what changed basically is she finds, no, I haven't lost the fear. There's all kinds of things that I still fear. And we get here, it's Russia, China, the Islamic totalitarians and the woke in the West that she really fears these. They're, she thinks of them as all destroying civilization. And how are we gonna oppose this? And we've tried various things that haven't worked. And this is in the background, I think, basically. Uh, and we'll, we can talk more about this at the end. And we've tried to def defend these things that, that is civiliz Western civilization by reason. It hasn't worked. And we're facing this tribe or tribes that are out to kill us. And in that situation, what do you do? You join another tribe that seems more palatable, more innocuous, but most of all will help you fight your enemy. Um, and But you're, it's a fixation on the enemy, of the, the supposed power of your enemy, and that you need a tribe to oppose them. And I, I think that's basically what the reasoning is in her piece. Yeah, there's a definite overall sense in the piece to me of uh, if you can't beat him join him and of course she doesn't think she's joining the uh the 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 side that she's the most fearful of but she's given up on the idea that you can you can convince people to be rational she's given up on the idea that you can uh, disabuse them of uh religious dogmatism and just going in for as you say, uh, her own version of it, perhaps the version she sees as somewhat more friendly. But that is, as you point out, the, the way that tribalism works. It, it's you're primarily motivated by fear and hatred for some enemy. And so you seek solace in a group that is willing to protect you. And but there then it's relevant that what's motivating you is the fear and not love for any kind of positive value. And Ayn Rand made uh, an important distinction between motivation by fear, motivation by love, and thought that uh, you know, only the latter uh, is, is a healthy uh, value-oriented motivation. And you see so much of that motivation by fear in, in politics today, where uh, it's, it's what the woke are going to do, it's what uh, the Muslims are going to do, that that's whatever it will take, as you say, to to destroy that, we have to do. Well, what values were we trying to protect against these enemies? What values do we care about? 
did we value life? Did we value freedom? Did we value truth? And it's especially that last one that I think we have to talk about in connection with his article, because uh, what you don't see coming out of the way she deals with this issue is any kind of concern for the love of truth. Uh, many critics of, of the article, especially atheist critics like uh, Michael Shermer, Hemant Mehta, have pointed out, I think rightly, that one thing you do not see in this, in this piece at all is any kind of argument for why she thinks or anyone should think that the doctrines of Christianity are actually true. No concern for, is there actually a God? Was Jesus his son? Does he uh, exist in the form of a trinity that is co-substantial with its parts, etc.? There, There is no concern for the, the, theo the theology of Christianity, why it has better theology than, uh, than Islam or why theology at all is a, is a valid field. She's in effect saying she doesn't really care about what's true. She's more concerned about which words, if we adopt them and intone them, will move other people to action. In particular, I guess her focus is what can we sell to Muslims who are coming to Europe? She doesn't think they can be turned into atheists. So uh, we should instead try to make them uh, Christians. And, and she's joining in that effort. Uh, so, Ankara, I know you had some thoughts on why it shouldn't be a surprise that there's not much attention paid to the arguments that are in question here. Yes, I think this is part of tribalism. So tribalism is a worldview. You view other people as not open to reason. You can't reach them by persuasion, argument evidence it's that's part of what it means they're the other they're alien the only um possibility is kill or be killed it's like you're fighting a savage animal that you can't you can't sit down and have a conversation with them and reason with them that you view other people like that but the it's do you have any reason to think Oh, yeah, but we're not like this, or I'm not like this. Tribalism as a worldview pushes, that's what people are like. But that means I'm like that too. I'm just, and that's part of it. Like, okay, I'm in a tribe, and they're in another tribe, and yeah, they're trying to kill me. I'm trying to kill them. You more and more view, start to view yourself as, yeah, other people don't respond to reason. I don't really either, or don't fully. And part of the, embrace of religion is yeah no i'm there's not a pretense that you can rationally defend this and so on and notice the formulation about that towards the end of the article that we have to win over the muslims so both first it's to win the hearts and minds so that already is introducing it's not just you're going to convince them to win the hearts and minds of muslims here in the west we have to offer them something more than videos on tiktok now, to present, like, why wouldn't you offer them the values and arguments of Western civilization? To put it as, oh, we have to give them his videos on TikTok. Why don't you give them the books of John Locke? Why don't you give them enlightenment literature? And I think in the end, the answer is, 
Yeah, but that doesn't move people. Um, that's not good. You can't persuade people like that. That's not the right way to look at people. But if you offer them some story that, yeah, we know it's made up and so on, that might move them. And that's, I mean, religions really just are big tribes that have become acceptable, uh, the major world religions, but that's the way to view them. And it is, uh, in in that sense, it's, the, the piece is open. So it's not like, there's no argument, but she was trying to give a disguised argument or something. It's yeah, there's no argument here. And that's part of the whole tribal flavor of it, I think. Ankar, one of the things that a number of the atheist critics of this piece have been saying is that what it does rather than giving arguments is to appeal to a kind of crude pragmatism. Um, I think that's what's going on when she's saying, well, this is the story that we can tell people that they'll go along with. Um, Michael Shermer, for example, says we should believe things because they're true, not just because they are politically pragmatic. And and I think it's I think he's right about that. But one thing that they're not saying in criticism of this piece that I think they should be saying is and this I think this is especially relevant to those who are saying, yeah, but these philosophical arguments aren't actually working. Uh, what else do we have? Something that they need to hear is that the pragmatism that she has on offer here and pragmatism generally just aren't even that practical. So it's, it's revealing to me, for instance, that uh, one of the things that she is afraid of, one of the threats that she thinks we need to work to oppose, along with the woke Islam, China, is Russia. She puts Russia in the category. So we're supposed to oppose the Russian threat by becoming Christian? How is, it, how is that supposed to work exactly, given that, the, of course, the Russians are even more Christian than the West? And uh, it's not an isolated data point, because it's, it's revealing that when you look at the history of Christianity, uh, the parts of the world where the Christianity has been truly undiluted by any values from the Enlightenment are precisely the parts of the world where we are still facing backward oppressive totalitarianism, like in Putin's Orthodox Christian Russia. So the fact, and she, she speaks, she makes all kinds of allegations that I don't think we'll get into today about how uh, freedom and uh, individual rights are for some reason associated with Christianity. I don't think those, the history matches up, but like one important data point here is, well, what about Russia? And think more generally then about the ideas that Christians give us and how is it that they're supposed to help us combat these various enemies that she's concerned about. Think about, for example, the threat we face from totalitarian Islam today, most recently as evidenced by the war on Israel by Hamas. Why is it that Israel has been disarmed? for so many decades against various Palestinian threats? Well, because of pressure from the West to, uh, to protect uh, innocent lives, allegedly innocent lives, pressure from the West to show restraint. Where is this coming from in the West? It's essentially coming from the Christian doctrine that we need to love our enemy, which incidentally, is a doctrine you don't see in Islam. And therefore, the invocation of this Christian doctrine emboldens Islam. 
Or is the idea rather that she wants to go back to a version of Christianity like they had in the Crusades, uh, where perhaps for whatever accidental reason, they simply didn't uh, emphasize the love thy enemy part so much, but which then still failed. Uh, there's a reason that the, that the Crusader armies were, were pushed back. The overall, and I think this goes together with your point about tribalism, Ankar, that the, one of the problems with tribalism, and especially then when you try to be pragmatic in your tribalism, is do everything you can to oppose this horrible evil enemy, even if it isn't uh, spreading a doctrine that you believe is true, is it then endows in your mind the enemy with this overwhelming sense of power. You think that the evil is powerful, but if you, if you actually think about it, Islam on its own, and I think this is true of the other evil ideologies that she's talking about, is not a powerful threat. It is a weak and impotent form of irrationality, a desert religion that has inhibited progress and, and prosperity in the countries that have adopted it for centuries. And the only reason that it appears as a powerful threat to us today is because of the sanction that has been given to it by more powerful, better forces in the world, whether secularists or Christians, the better Christians who want us to submit to it because of the fact that they have these ideas, these Christian ideas like love thy enemy that, that say, anytime you have a weak, impotent, pathetic other, you have to sacrifice to them. And that is of course a moral idea that comes directly from Christianity. That is the source of our weakness. And, and here she is saying, we need to join that tribe and continue to uh, empower it. And I don't know if you have any reactions to that. Yeah, I think it definitely is part of the tribalism because part of tribalism is in the end to ignore the whole phenomenon of ideas. It's just, it's, it's two tribes or two gangs fighting. And what's important is the fight and gaining victory over the other people, not that a set of ideas wins. And she's, I think of it as a, it's a descent into tribalism. So there's some still recognition that, well, what I value in the West is certain ideas and certain institutions of the West that embody those ideas. But when, when it's, oh, we need Christianity to uphold these things, there's no explanation of it, of how that works. And there's no even mention of the content of Christian dogma. It's, so you quoted her, Christianity has it all. But what is the all that it has? There's basically no discussion of it in the piece. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that's, it's, I found a tribe. And it's not, what's not particularly relevant is the ideas, because people aren't moved by ideas. I found a tribe that's opposed to these other things. And so I think if, if, they gain power or we gain power now that, I've, now that I've joined the tribe, it will be better than if these other tribes have power. But why will it be? What will you do? There's not discussion of this. And the, the tribalism, I think it it's two things. You lose concern with the truth 
and you lose concern with morality. It's morality just becomes the other side's evil. Yeah, but are we perpetrating the same evil as they are? It You don't really in the end, as you become more and more tribal, you don't ask that question. It's my tribe right or wrong, or it's, uh, but this is not moral, real moral judgment. It's, yeah, my tribe's always right. And so if, if you think of her history with Islam, that she doesn't feel the need, say, to ask the question. So she views Islam rightly as oppressive and what she was brought up. The Take, take and it's not the only thing you could take, take Catholicism and the now decades and decades um, controversy, but it, it's, it's more than a controversy, of the incredible sexual abuse that's horrific under the church across countries, across decades, involving thousands and thousands and thousands of leaders in the church. And it, you don't feel the need to talk about that and say, like, really, I'm, turn, I'm saying the solution is Christianity? Do I mean the Christianity of Catholicism? She doesn't feel the need to tell you. And that's to tell you, like, it's not, what's driving it is not ideas. And that means it's not really a concern with, with what's true. And it's not a concern in the end with what's good. It's a concern with, can I defeat my enemy? I wanted to say one more thing about the pragmatism issue, because, uh, again, this is a term that's come up in the criticisms that atheists have made of what Ali is saying. And I think that they're right, that, that she is resorting to a kind of pragmatic argument. It's in the service of this tribalism. The tribalism is the really essential point that they're missing. But more of a kind of side issue that they're missing is the way in which their own, or at least many of their own suggested alternatives amount to a kind of pragmatism as well, which is no solace for anyone who's seeking a secular alternative source of meaning and value. One of the reasons she says she's left atheism is because she, she couldn't find uh, that positive intellectual ideological alternative. She thinks religion provides guidance and meaning and value in life. And the, athe the atheists are saying, well, what about all the different forms of secular ethical theories that we have defended and offered? What about the kind of secular humanism um, that Michael Shermer and Steven Pinker have argued for in recent years. And I think the, I mean, it's certainly true that it's, it's, it's important for atheists to try to provide that alternative if they want to offer uh, a sense of meaning and value to people who are thinking about leaving religion. But the fact is that the various alleged ethical alternatives offered by secularists over the last few decades have have predominantly been this same kind of pragmatism that they are now criticizing. Generally, the secular movement over the last century has been under the sway of William James and John Dewey. Just a few weeks ago, I was at an atheist conference where I heard one of their speakers, I won't mention any names, say, we shouldn't be that intolerant of religion because religion uh, helps people cope. And that's 
that's as as good as they can do, and we shouldn't we shouldn't try to criticize them. This was in an atheist conference, so it's like, is it all that shocking that uh, they've that they that they come across as having the impression, giving the impression to Ali that they're giving? But more than that, if you look into if you dig into some of the actual theories that some of them are trying to offer as alternatives, um, and and Michael Shermer was doing this just this week in his piece written in response to Ayn Hirsi He's, he points to Steven Pinker's humanistic, enlightenment humanistic ethics, uh, basically says he agrees with it. And, and what that doctrine does, and I've written an article about this that we'll share at the end, is basically to say we need to kind of scrape the bottom of the barrel of history and find all the different doctrines out there uh, that are secular, which happen to basically lead to the same kind of ethical conclusions as Christianity. So we need to find the Kants and the uh, Rawls's and the Parfits of the world who, for whatever nominally kind of secular reasons, argue that morality consists in a set of doctrines that have what he, what he calls interchangeability of perspectives or impartiality the idea that morality isn't concerned with your own narrow practical interests, that it's, it's ultimately concerned with selflessness and sacrifice. They don't always use those words, but that's what it amounts to. And common to both Pinker's and Shermer's approach is, and I, and I demonstrate this in my article, is, is that there's no concern for whether the doctrines are actually true. There are no arguments given for why we should think that morality consists in this kind of impartial selfless value. There are no arguments given. There's simply, if we appeal to this secular doctrine, will people practice the ideas of altruism that, well, we're all supposed to think are actually what morality consists in anyway. So it's, it's the same kind of pragmatism. It's the same kind of lack of concern for what's actually true. And incidentally, it's a pragmatism that's itself, I think, motivated by the kind of fear that we've been talking about. There's a fear of disagreeing with the predominant consensus about what morality is. A predominant consensus, incidentally, that has been foisted on history by Christianity. So it's atheists and secularists cowering in fear, fear of disagreeing with moral worldview that the Christians have foisted on all of us. It's the same kind of tribalism. It's the same kind of pragmatism. It's the same kind of fear. And what we really need is the courage to stand up in truth. To Why is it actually true that morality consists in sacrifice? Why should we cede this point uh, to the Christians and then actually look for scientific, natural, naturalistic, rational reasons that justify an alternative approach to morality, one that isn't beholden to this notion that altruism has a monopoly on morality. And, and Ankur, I don't know if you want to say anything more about this, because I know you wrote a piece uh, arguing for what, how we can actually find morality and happiness without God, without being beholden to any of these prejudices. Yes, let me say something about that, but let me tie it to what we've been talking about. This, the last point you've been talking about, that they, people like Pinker, 
adopt Christian ethics without question and without really arguing that it's true. And they're doing it in part from fear of um, standing out and disagreeing fundamentally with people's moral views and moral framework. That is part of the tragedy here. There's a way in which you can look at Ian Hersiali's article and say, it's more open and honest than the other approaches that say, oh, we're rational and secular, except we're adopting a religious ethics and they're gonna to try to give it a secular spin, but we don't really have any arguments for why it's true. That's more deceptive than somebody saying, yeah, like I've tried reason, it didn't work, and we need some values and we need to be able to defend civilization. And I'm going to turn and I'm going to say, like, I'm explicitly turning to religion. I'm not trying to do it under the covers or in a hidden way. And I think that's part of what's tragic here. There's a way in which all of these figures don't fully understand the Enlightenment um, and don't fully embrace it and actually are anti-enlightenment in many fundamental ways. And the, but you can see a difference between the, so if, if you think of the enlightenment as part of what it brings is it brings, you can say broadly reason to as it becomes a cultural force and a, 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 a cultural value that we wanna shape all our institutions around. That's most fundamentally. But if you ask, then what are expressions of that? It's science, it's political freedom, um, it's individualism, and what that brings is, which is a system of capitalism. That's what comes new uh, as a result of the Enlightenment. That's what the American Revolution is about. And it's easiest to defend science and to remain a defender of science, to see the value of science, to understand what grounds that value, that it's rooted in careful observation, processing of that observation, thinking of what the evidence and the counter evidence is, putting those into principles and theories. They have a firsthand, many of these people have a firsthand knowledge of the value of science. And the more you have that, I think the more you will, cannot be shaken out of that value or putting it in a different way, think that this value has to be grounded in faith. So I think of somebody like a Dawkins, who's a scientist, a biologist, it's so clear to him the value and the source of science that it, there, you, he's not looking for some kind of justification. He doesn't feel like, oh, it hasn't been justified. But when you look at the other things, political freedom and particularly individualism, and if you read through the, some of the literature and the arguments in the Enlightenment, it becomes clear that none of these values have an actual defense in Enlightenment literature. And the, the, so there's many positive things said about them but they don't have a full defense. And in particular, they don't have a full defense because individualism requires egoism. It requires a moral theory that says the individual is what counts, not the group, not as service to the group, not the collective. It's the individual that counts. 
And do you have a rational argument for egoism? None of them offer it. None of them will even go there. They all try to spin the altruism in various ways, a collectivism, and that's what comes from Christianity. And someone I think like Ayan Hirsiali has a sense that there's no real defense here. And you have two options, to look for a rational defense or to say it can't be defended by reason and you have to turn uh, to faith. And Ayn Rand's the one who takes the first path and says, no, this needs a rational defense. Part of what that means is we have to rethink the whole subject of morality. That's what she does in her work. If you're not willing to do that, then the second route seems like the only route. Like we can't defend this in reason. If you want to champion Western civilization, enlightenment, you have to champion individualism. You can't do that on this kind of moral approach. So you have to say that I can't do it by reason and arguments. I have to do it by faith. And that's like the best positive reading you can make of, I think of Ayan Hirsiali's argument is yeah, reason hasn't worked here. There, nobody has a defense of these things. And yet what I value most of all is free speech. Um, th- that's part of what's in the article. So I have to ground free speech in faith. And I'm going to ground it in what looks like the best one to me, Christianity. <clears throat> and that's a fail. Like That's a massive failure of these thinkers. Yeah, Ankar, I was, I was at an atheist conference a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas, and I saw Richard Dawkins speak. And he gave an excellent speech about the, uh, the wonders of scientific discovery, about the glory of human achievement that it represents. And uh, included in the speech, I thought was particularly uh, excellent, was, was his insistence, uh, and, and this was much to the consternation of certain people in the audience, uh, that respect for, bio- for the science of biology uh, entails that that sex is binary, that there are, there are men and there are women, and the the few cases of intersex phenomena are not sufficient to deny that binary in science. And he said we have to we have to pay attention to the science, uh, regardless of how unpopular it is. And uh, yeah, there were people in the audience who were very uncomfortable because there's a, it's a left leaning audience. Uh, uh, they are many of them are beholden to and sympathetic to the trans ideology. And I mean, I think there's, there's aspects of that view that you can debate with, but there's, you're right that someone like Dawkins has this fundamental respect for the truth, regardless of whatever prejudices it goes up against, but where he and other atheists in his category have really, I think, refused to extend that same courageous defense of the truth is to the issue of morality. And if you, if you look at his books defending uh, atheism and criticizing religion, that's a subject that rarely comes up, or if it does come up, it's with some uh, hand-waving about how morality has evolved, uh, which really doesn't answer any of the important questions, because um, the important question isn't where does morality come from, but is its content actually true? And when he and other atheists actually get around to talking about the content, it's what I said before. It's trying to find 
pragmatic uh, approach to what doctrines can we dig up that will that happen to be secular, which will nonetheless lead us to act in the same way that Christians act, uh, and notably missing from any of these couple of atheist conferences that I went to were any sessions, any discussion whatsoever about how can we defend, how can we articulate a rational morality. They're, they're much more concerned with um, debunking claims about UFO sightings uh, than they are uh, with defending morality, uh, defending a rational secular morality. And I, I thought that was um, <laughs> uh, revealing omission and, a, and, a, and, and exactly, exactly the kind of omission that you would expect someone like who's smart enough, who's as smart as Ayan Hirsi Ali to notice and to react to and to have this kind of despair about. And I mean, I, I think you probably can expect more cases like this. There, there are going to be more prominent secular people who, because they're looking for a source of meaning and value and guidance in life and who don't find it articulated in any kind of systematic way uh, on the secular left, they're going to leave. They're going to fall in with some kind of religion or another. And I mean, I think Ayan Hirsi Ali herself is, is right to observe that the, the way in which secular people have, uh, have uh, fallen into uh, various forms of, of wokeism, as they call it, which is really just a code word for left egalitarianism, that this is itself a form of religion and it's, it's, it's itself an irrational dogma that offers a kind, a kind of corrupt guidance for those who are looking for it in a tribal age. Uh, and I think she's doing the same thing now by, by joining up with Christianity. Yes. Ankara, I don't know if you, you have any at, further thoughts, but there was one last thing I wanted to say. Well, well, I would just say when you look at these, the, these thinkers who are pro enlightenment or who think of themselves as pro-enlightenment and who are arguing on behalf of the enlightenment to get how perverse their moral arguments are and how unconnected they are to actual enlightenment ideals the new moral idea in the enlightenment if you want to give it a one of the encapsulating formulations in the enlightenment is the pursuit of happiness it, which means the individual's pursuit of his or her own happiness that's part of the individualism it's part of the selfishness or egoism of the enlightenment and almost all of them cite kant favorably in morality kant goes to war with the idea that morality could possibly be about the pursuit of the individual's own happiness. You're not even in the sphere of morality if that's what you think. He's, he is the anti-enlightenment figure um, philosophically, but here we're talking about morality and in deeper philosophy, that is true as well. And they just trot him out as, oh yeah, the, how do you ground morality? You can do it like that. They, they take the representative of the anti-enlightenment and bring them out and say, yeah, that, why don't we use this? And you can call that uh, pragmatism, but it, I view it as lower than pragmatism as if you're going to embrace the enemy of your ideals and say, oh yeah, like why, how come this can't ground it? You've lost interest in really trying to ground it. And, that, and that's the sort of 
appeasement and the fear of don't say we're questioning anything. Don't don't look at us and say like we think Kant is wrong. No, of course we don't think of that. We we can use him to justify this and so. And that's appeasement of of in fact of enemies. And appeasement is, a, I think, a common tactic uh, by people who are living in a fearful tribal age. Unfortunately. Well, Ankara, I think I'd like to close by sharing a quotation. Um, and, and this is a quotation from Ayan Hirsi Ali, but it's a quotation from her in 2007 um, in her book, Infidel, where, which is her memoirs, where she describes her journey out of Somalia, out of Islam, uh, and toward atheism, the Enlightenment in the West. And it's something that I wish she herself would take to heart today. She wrote, 350 years ago, when Europe was still steeped in religious dogma and thinkers were persecuted, just as they are today in the Muslim world, Spinoza, another Dutch thinker, was clear-minded and fearless. He was the first modern European to state clearly that the world is not ordained by a separate God. Nature created itself, Spinoza said. Reason, not obedience, should guide our lives. Though it took centuries to crumble the entire ossified cage of European social hierarchy from kings to serfs and between men and women, all of it shored up by the Catholic Church was destroyed by this thought. And I think, it's of course, not just Spinoza who destroys uh, this hierarchy. It's, it's the, the whole edifice of enlightenment thought. And that's, that's what is responsible for the progress and the values in the West that she wants to defend. It's not Christianity that gave us the abolition of slavery. It's not Christianity that gave us individual freedom of thought and conscience, contrary to what she says and contrary to what the book she quotes, Tom Holland says, it's the values of the enlightenment. And she knew that at one point, she knew that in 2007, I wish she still knew it today. Yeah, and this I think of as this is, the fundamental lesson or the fundamental way to situate her article and her conversion is that the enlightenment ideals are right. The, the valuing of science, of reason, of individualism, of egoism, and of capitalism, which are all anti-Christian ideas. The valuing of those is right. The fact is the enlightenment from a philosophical perspective does not give anywhere close to adequate arguments for these ideals. The ideals are ideals, but you do need arguments for them. And I mean, just to put it in terms of reason, the philosophical thinkers in the enlightenment are pro-reason, but they can't even answer the question, are we aware of a world that exists externally and independently from us? They can't answer that question in actual fact and philosophically. And so what the Enlightenment left us with an enormous promise, but a real philosophical job. It's the philosophical job that I think Ayn Rand undertook to defend and to give new arguments for the power of reason, the nature of individualism, why egoism is right in morality and why capitalism and freedom are right in politics. And you do need those arguments. 
And I think of Ayan Hirsi as an example of, she doesn't get these arguments from reading either Enlightenment figures or modern sympathizers with the Enlightenment. You don't actually get arguments to ground these ideas. And you then have a choice. Look elsewhere. And basically, the only place to look is with Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Look to that and study that, or give up the hope that you can find rational arguments and reasons, philosophical reasons, that will underpin Enlightenment ideals. And if you can't find that, then faith seems like, well, maybe that's an alternative. Thanks, Ankar. Uh, let's uh, wrap up by sharing some resources with our audience that will give them some of the arguments that I think uh, the dominant secular tradition has failed to give people like Ayan Hirsi Ali. So I referenced this previously in our conversation. An article that you wrote is actually one of the inaugural articles of our, of our journal, New Ideal, Finding Morality and Happiness Without God. Uh, you can find that at bit.ly slash finding hyphen morality. Please check it out. Share it widely. It's the, it's the, it's the single piece that I wish uh, more of these secularists today would read and that I wish more people who were leaving religion would read when they're looking for an alternative source of meaning and guidance in life. Uh, secondly, I'll mention a, a piece that I wrote, Debunking Supernaturalism, the Supernaturalism that Haunts Secular Ethics. This is the piece where I take apart uh, various uh, secular proposals from people like Shermer and Pinker, uh, showing how they ultimately are relying on assumptions that they themselves have gotten from Christianity, that they're basically just looking for secular ways to uh, justify uh, unjustifiable supernaturalistic claims in Christian ethics and that you can find at bit.ly slash secular ethics. So uh, I would also like to let people know that we are, if you have questions that came up in our discussion today, or you have questions about objectivist philosophy and its finer points, generally we are soon to be spinning off a special Q&A series. We used to do Q&A episodes occasionally on this program. Uh, we're now creating a whole standalone series where we answer your questions. And if you have questions you'd like answered, please send them to newideal at einrand.org. Uh, we'll be doing these on a monthly basis and really depending on what kind of questions we get. If we get lots of questions on ethics, we'll do an ethics episode. If we get lots of questions on politics, we'll do a politics episode, etc. So whatever we, kind of question we get the most of, we'll devote special episodes to that on a regular ongoing basis. So please send us your questions. If you liked today's program and you'd like to be able to follow us, if you're watching on YouTube, please uh, subscribe so that you can get notifications when we uh, post new videos when we go live. Uh, hit that bell button if you want to get that notification. Uh, and otherwise, uh, like, share. If you're watching this as recording, please leave a comment uh, in the comments section. That helps optimize the algorithm in favor. Uh, our YouTube channel has really been blowing up recently. We surpassed 100,000 uh, subscribers, and we've had several videos go over a million views. And uh, I think we're, we're really reaching new audiences here. So this is uh, contrary to those who say that there isn't an audience for rational, uh, rational ideas. I think uh, by the, on, on the contrary, on YouTube, it's clear that there are and we are reaching those goals. 
Uh, likewise, if you're doing the same on uh, Facebook, please share, like, comment, uh, and uh, let us know what you think. So um, thanks very much, Ankar, for your time on this. Uh, we put this episode together sort of at the last minute, but it was on a very important topic, and I'm glad that we were able to say what we said today. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, man. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.